All right, we're going to continue in John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, actually I'm going to read the text first and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of get started here. I've got three main points that we're going to go through. I apologize, I kind of messed up on my notes a little bit, so the points actually aren't on there, but I'll tell you what they are. You can write them in. All right, so 14 through 24. Now, last week, we obviously did 1 through 13. Uh, this was Jesus speaking. Um, the message was basically dealing with the, the, just the intentionality, the, perfect, the perfection of Jesus' timing um, as he's gone through here. And this just kind of continues on. And it says that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning? When he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was Moses's, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. There's a whole lot of things going on here, and as we go through, we're going to we'll unpack some of it. But what I want to start off to is I want you to get this picture in the message titled, The Perfect Savior, which is Jesus. And I want to talk to you about perfect and perfection. Uh, by definition, perfect is being entirely without fault or defect, satisfying all requirements, corresponding to an ideal standard or an abstract concept, and faithfully reproducing the original, legally valid. So that's what perfect is, right? Who here? Meets that definition. Nobody. Good job. So the reality is, obviously, I look, I look at two, but this is just Webster's Dictionary, nothing real fancy here. It's not scripture, but I like one of the two parts of this. One that says satisfying all requirements. Is that not exactly what Christ did for us? And the second part, faithfully reproducing the original. Is he not the incarnate God that walked this earth? So he... He lives out. He is the ideal of perfection. I think about for us in our life when we, talk, when we think about the word perfection, or we say, we say that meal was perfect, right? Have you ever said that before, that meal was perfect? But what is a perfect meal? It contained all five food groups. You know, it was the right level of saltiness. You know, what I may think is a perfect meal, Ben may not think is a perfect meal. My wife definitely doesn't think some of them are a perfect meal, Right? You know, deer meat and sausage, I think that's pretty perfect, right? Think about this, the weather's perfect, you know? We're kind of getting into that season where a lot of you would think that that weather's perfect. But for me, a perfect day of weather is like low 30s, little wind, crisp for hunting, right? You know, or maybe a little misty and cold if I want to go duck hunting, right? But is that an ideal of perfect weather for you? No, of course not. You know, this house is perfect, you know. Well, for me, a two-bedroom, one-bath house would not be perfect, right? For you, it may be. 
but for me it's not. And then this vacation was perfect. You know, some of you may say that about Disney World. I would never say that about Disney World, right? You know, I consider it miserable. But, you know, if you talk to Donnie Scott, it is the perfect vacation. He loves it. So the idea is, the idea of perfect and perfection is really relative to most of us. Um, it just, it's just a matter of fact. Most things in our life cannot be seen, first of all, as perfect until we accomplish it. You know, if you haven't experienced it, how can you say that it's even perfect? You know, it's different from what one other person may say. And normally we have to have some sort of an experience to compare it against. So really the definition of perfect may not always apply as we use it. Um, but as believers, no matter what the situation is, no, what, no matter what our experience is, Christ is this picture of perfection. And as we go through this text, you're going to see that there's multiple areas where his perfection is seen. Um, when we look at the previous text from 7, 1 through 13, which we spoke on last week, he says in verse 6, my time has not yet come. He says, my time has not yet come. And he's speaking to him and he's asking him why he's not entering into the town at that point. And the time has not come. You know, it's his timing is absolutely perfect. And not wanting to make a triumphant entry in there because of that, because there was the Feast of Booths, the Feast of, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles was going on at that time. Look what it says here in the first part. It says that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And that word middle is pretty close to the middle, but it also means in the midst of what was going on. So the festival would have been underway. There would have been a lot of people coming into town. And for obviously the timing that he had for him for ultimately for his crucifixion, uh, to make a triumphant entry into there when everybody would have been paying attention uh, may have caused undue um, you know, attention to him in that moment. So his timing we see here is perfect, that he comes in in the midst of it. This would have been somewhere between September and October. It was a time when they commemorated the Israelites' trek through the wilderness. They would actually build um, kind of like makeshift little huts uh, in remembrance of it. It was also a time when they were harvesting grapes and olives at that time. So it was a big deal going on here. But he just kind of sneaks in to town because his timing is perfect. But the next thing we see here, he says, is when they see, we see here that Jesus shows up about the middle of the feast and he went up into the temple and does what? And began teaching. So he slips right on in and begins teaching. And that's our first point here that his teaching is perfect. His teaching is perfect. And we're going to look into that here. It says Jesus would have entered into the temple and taught in a similar fashion that any of the rabbis would have done in that day. He would have walked on in. He would have, he would have began to teach. He would have began to teach from the Old Testament. And people would have gathered around and would have listened. Of course, there would have been other rabbis and other leaders there and Jewish people that were seeing this go out. But look what it says in verse 15. It says, the Jews therefore marveled. And it continues as saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So they're seeing him preach and they're seeing him teach. And they notice something very obvious about the way, about his teaching. It's, it's distinctly different. It's the same as what they hear from the Old Testament, but there's an element of it that's different than what they've seen before. So they recognize something's going on. They've got that word marveled there. And the word marvel is just an expression of just being kind of in awe of what's going on, trying to wrap their minds around it. And it says, and this is, this is good here, it says, how is it this man has learning? And when you look at the word learning in Greek, it's, it's oida, and it means to know of anything. 
Not just learning in general. It's to know of anything. So they're saying, how is this man knows, knows of anything when he has never studied? And if you look at what would have been going on during that time, um, one, he never studied under any great rabbi. Um, he didn't study in, the, in any of their schools and the things that they had in place. Um, and this was a very standard process for a Jewish boy as he grew up. Each from, you know, starting at a couple years old, there was benchmarks that he had to meet all the way up into training. And although Jesus obviously had a period of training through childhood, it wasn't, it wasn't similar to what they had seen. So there's like, who's this guy showing up here on the scene after all these years? And he, but he knows essentially more than any of us and he understands it better than any of us. What's going on here? And then Jesus responds, because they say when he has never studied, and Jesus responds in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You know, why didn't, why didn't Jesus just say, well, I'm God, what do you expect? Right? I mean, because technically he could have said that and he would have been correct. But remember, at that point, you know, the, the Jewish people knew of of prophets, and they knew of everybody that's come through the ages that have, have brought God's word. So that's first element there, that he's, he is sent by God, as he states there. But the other picture is there that he is doing the will of the Father. And he's trying to show him something there, that there is, that God's will matters, and that it is, he is in alignment with the Father's will. And it's also a picture of the authority of what he's saying. See, the Jews knew that he had sent people over and over. But look here when verse 7, this is going to go back to Matthew. Matthew seven twenty-eight through 29, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So there we see it again. They, there was something different about the way he was teaching. He was teaching with an authority that they weren't used to. Like it says there, but not as their scribes. Not that what the scribes necessarily were teaching was a problem, but there's an obvious difference that the way Jesus is presenting it is completely different than what they had been used to. Our authority must come from God so that we can effectively advance the gospel. And that's what Jesus is obviously walking this out, and he's, and he's showing them, and he's showing them this, that the reality of, what he, of who he is and what he is. But then we look in Acts 4.13, and it says, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know, so as we see this play out, you know, Jesus puts himself in alignment with the Father. And it's a recognizable difference of who he is. And then we go a little bit later on after the disciples have been discipled by Jesus. And how are they recognized? They recognized that they were with Jesus. And the same picture is for us as the church. You know, when you're speaking to people at work and when you're speaking to people in your home and so forth, there should be a recognizable difference in what you're saying and that it's in alignment with Jesus, right? Not in what we say, not in our good words, but in alignment with Scripture and what it says. Our teaching should be recognized that we have been with Jesus just as his disciples were. And the key here is that the authority, and get this, this is, this is important, the authority is not in our words. The authority is when we speak the words of Christ, when we speak what we have here from Genesis to Revelation. Because sometimes it's easy for us to get hung up on the idea, we're going to talk about a little more on how well we speak, you know, how well we enunciate, how much we know, and so forth. But the real power comes when we line up underneath God's will 
when we line up under his authority and we preach and teach his word. And that takes us to our next point that not only is his teaching perfect, but in order for his, when his teaching is perfect, his will is perfect. His will is perfect. Verse 17 says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no what? No falsehood. So here he goes. He transitions. He talked, they talked about the teaching. And now he's moving into his will and who he is. And he says, if anyone's will and God's will. So let's look at that because I see two different things there that jumped out at me. One, anyone's will. That's the first part he's talking about us. And that's the Greek word for philo. And it is to will, to have in mind, to intend. You're just willing to do. So right there, it says, if anyone's will. So if my will is to do this, that's what it's speaking of. If it's your will, if you will to walk out of church right now, if you will to go out and eat after you leave here, that's just a desire that you have. Look what he ties in here. But he says, but if your will is to do God's will. All right, so there, there's a game changer for us because now there's a connection of our will with his will. And if you know, there's always a struggle of two wills, right? As far as I know, we only have one will in here tonight, so we shouldn't have any problems. That's Will Dale. So we should be okay. But the struggle here is between the wills. Let's look at God's will because will here is called the llama, like the llama. Okay, but catch the definition here of this one. It says, what one wishes or has determined shall be done of the purpose of God to bless mankind through Christ, of what God wishes to be done by us, commands, precepts, will, choice, inclination, desire, and pleasure. There's a whole other meaning to this will because this will is one that is specific to God where the other one is specific to us. When we look at it here, and I think it ties very well together here in Romans 12, 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So it says there that there's this process that has to take place for us to understand the will of God. Now, we know that the will of God is perfect. That's not to be questioned, um, and whether you believe it or not, it's the truth, okay? You can work that part out on your own. So now we move on from there, and it says here that, we, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God. Now, how many times do you, you, know, you hear in discussion people discuss the will of God? What's the will of God in my life? What's the will of God for my church? What's the will of God for my business? What's the will of God? In most cases, um, it's, it potentially has the element for selfish motive, right? Um, because... In reality, the will of what your will in your life is, once again, what it says here, the will of God. And we're going to go into that a little bit, little bit further here. But in Romans 2, 12, 2, it says, and there's a renewing of your mind that takes place. Well, how does that renewing of your mind take place? Through Scripture, through the reading of God's Word. That's where that renewing takes place, which means if that's where the renewing takes place, then where does the discerning take place? It's all the same. It's not a, not a complex model. 
The reality is, is it is what does, it is what is, is the washing of the word in our life, right? Ephesians 5.25, when he's speaking about the marriage relationship, there's a washing that takes place there that comes through the mind. So in order for us to have right understanding of his teaching, we must be in submission to his authority and be in submission to his will. Because if we don't understand his will and we don't understand his authority because we're not in his word and not being able to discern, then we won't understand his will, right? Write that down. So look here, so he's making this connection for us between our head, what we think, and he's making a connection to our heart on where the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is and where he's speaking to us and convicting our lives. Because our mind, you know, that's the dealing with our, with our will, but Christ is dealing with our heart, and he's trying to make this all come together. But look at this, when we have unbelief of his will, if we don't totally get it, if we don't buy into it, we then will have misunderstanding of his teaching. They go hand in hand. We must have understanding of his will in order to understand his teaching. We've got to be careful of the me-centered approach um, to Christianity, that everything about God's will is about you. It's not. If that hurts your feelings, I'm sorry. He does love you, and he does desire great things for you as long as they line up with his will to the ultimate glory of his name, to the advancement of his gospel, and to the uh, maturing of his body, right? It's not that difficult. Understanding spiritual truth is not an intellectual exercise. And I want to share this quote with you, which it kind of sums up a lot of my thoughts. This is not scripture. This is a quote from a gentleman by the name of Matt Carter. So listen to this. It's really good. It's about seven or eight sentences. It's kind of lengthy. It says, some Christians think spiritual growth is simply about more Bible knowledge. We think attending a certain Bible study and gaining more information means we're growing spiritually. We think reading some books means our faith is growing. We think a certain person who can quote a bunch of verses is a spiritual giant. We confuse Bible knowledge with actual spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity means we're submitting to our will to the fathers. Spiritual maturity means I value assembling with God's people. I place the needs of others before my own, and I stop grumbling and complaining about what I don't like. Don't stop reading books and attending Bible studies. Those can be great tools for spiritual growth. But don't confuse the accumulation of Bible knowledge with a growing love for Christ and a submission to his will. Remember, no one studied the Bible more than the Pharisees, and according to Jesus, no one misunderstood spiritual maturity like the Pharisees. That's powerful. That's deep. Because it forces us to get us out of the way. It forces us to allow our heart to override our mind. It forces us to begin to question things in our life. But that's good. Because what did it speak to there? Spiritual maturity. We also know it as sanctification as we walk out. Guys, it's not ultimately about us. You know, notice all those things are, you know, having Bible knowledge and all that obviously is great. But if it's all because you, and you miss the will of the Father, then you're a Pharisee. That's where we line up, right? That's tough. That's tough, and it's a reality, but Christ is the answer for us. Look here in 1 John 2, verse 20 and 27. It says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you 
about everything. And it is true, and it is no lie, just as, as it has taught you, abide in him. And that goes back to the scripture we looked at earlier, where it takes time. There's a process that's taking place there, and he's speaking to you. Remember in Romans 12, too, it says that there's a renewing of the mind that takes place. There's a perceiving of his will, and then we move forth. Maturity, spiritual maturity, takes time. It's, it's over a process, and what it is is as God is renewing our mind, as he's teaching you things, we mature. How many of you here are different than how you were maybe five years ago? To the good, right? That's the idea, that there is a, a maturing process that takes place. When we look back across our life, and we look past any length of time, we should see the faithfulness of Christ in our life, and we should see a behavior change, a culture of our life shift from where we were before Christ to where we are now. And we need to be faithful to it to realize that it's till you die. It's a long time. Some of us longer than others. Uh, some of you, you know, this might be the last message you hear. Some of you, you know, you might have thousands more to hear. No, I hope nobody is their last message. Spiritual maturity, we can't, we can't disregard it. As we understand his will, it will become evident in our actions and our behavior that we reflect it. And ultimately what it does there as we move from seeing his will and the perfection lived in our, our life, it's just that we begin to walk out his righteousness. Of course we know, and that leads us to point three, that his righteousness is perfect. The one that we look to in him is a perfect righteousness. Now I want to read verses 19 through 23 here. It says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, and then if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So here he is, he's now speaking to the Pharisees, and he's speaking to what they believe is their righteousness. But he's come to show them a whole nother level of what righteousness actually means. And as he's talking about right there, if you remember back in uh, chapter 5, Jesus healed the man on a Sabbath, right? And they wanted to kill him for it. And he's speaking there to him about uh, circumcision and the Mosaic covenant. And what he's actually saying is, is that actually existed even before the time with Moses. But the reality is, is, you know, if you were born today, counting that day, eight days later, if that was on the Sabbath, then you would have to circumcise that child on the Sabbath because their tradition was on the eighth day. But they would do that obviously, which would be in, uh, a problem for what they have here. But here he is, you know, saving a man's life, and they want to take his. I mean, isn't it just, it's just crazy, right? I mean, when you compare circumcision to saving a man's life, I see an obvious uh, choice. And saving the man's life seems pretty important to me, right? So he's pointing out their hypocrisy here. And let's look at it. There's, this is not in the text, but looking at the word righteous. First of all, self-righteous. All right? Who here is self-righteous? Oh, God, I'm trying to trick you. It says, convinced of one's own righteousness, one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. 
also known as narrowly mindedly moralistic. That's a definition from Webster on self-righteous. Then we look here at righteous. Righteous is acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. That's righteousness. I don't really see a real big correlation between the two, even though they share the main word, right? One says convinced of one's own righteousness, right? So that by, the, by very definition, self-righteousness means myself, your level of what you believe to be righteous. What's the problem with that? Where's the problem come in? It's not consistent. It's not truth. It's relative. It's false. Make it up as you go. Right? That's self-righteousness. So look here. There's a couple of things I want us to look at about self-righteousness. Kind of list of things that I thought of. So this is what it looks like. It's the viewing ourselves as pretty good. Right? Pretty good. You know, I don't... Um, I don't do this, and I don't do that. I used to do that, and I don't do this. Um, I'm a pretty good guy, right? I do speed limit, wear my seatbelt, you know, so forth. No problem. Other one, we compare ourselves to the worst people, like the Pharisees. Didn't they say that? that? What was his prayer? God, thank you so much that I am not like these robbers and these thieves. And he gives this big laundry list of all the people that he doesn't like, you know? I mean, how hypocritical, right? I mean, is really that your standard? I mean, is that the standard that you compare against? I mean, it's not a high bar, right? You know, so that's what it does. It allows us to compare. Look here, also self-righteousness hides the bad things and magnifies the good. Kind of reminds me of Facebook, Twitter, any of those, right? Highlight reels. You know, self-righteousness allows us to live out, or at least believe we've got this highlight reel playing out in our life, right? But it's not the truth. Although there may be elements of truth in there, the reality is there's a whole lot of garbage probably underneath all that, you know. I mean, I think about your, you know, my kids, whenever they make a mess, there's two ways to clean. One, you clean it up and you discard it. The other one is you cover it up, right? Well, that's what self-righteousness is. It is a covering up. The trash is still there. It's still there. I mean, you know, I was, we were getting ready this morning for work. I was getting ready to leave, and my kids have these hoverboards which are so cool. But the problem is, is they ride them in the yard and then they ride them in my house, you know, and it's clover season. You know, anybody know about clovers? They're green and messy. You know, so I say, you're going to clean that up before you leave. So he sweeps it up essentially outside and brings it inside to throw it away. I'm like, no, this trash. You get rid of it, right? Trash in our life, we get rid of and move it out. We don't bring it back in the house. Self-righteousness, um, excuse me, self-righteousness often feels right or good, right? Because we are able to justify it. We're able to make ourselves feel good about it. We're able to say, well, it's not quite this, but yeah, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. And this is self-righteousness, and here's a good one for you, twist the scriptures to suit your own interests. You know? How many times have you used scripture um, to help out your cause? Or maybe you wouldn't have done that. Maybe you heard somebody do that, right? Right? And that goes back to, remember, that goes back to understanding his will and understanding, and understanding his teaching. Because if you have those two things in place and you understand that his righteousness is perfect, 
then you can't twist scriptures because there's only one truth in that scripture. And that's what Christ meant and intended for it. Romans 10, 1 through 3 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So who's it about? What's it say right in verse 4? Christ. And that's where we aim, and that's where we point, is Christ. You know, the biggest danger with self-righteousness is it does not allow any room for grace. Not only in our lives, but ultimately, is that not what Christ came for us? Is that not what he died on the cross for us and gave us grace? But whenever we're self-righteous, there leaves no room for that, which ultimately, as a, if you're a non-believer, obviously that is what stands between you and salvation. For us as a believer, when we fall into self-righteousness, that falls between us and effectively advancing the gospel and discipling the church and exalting his name because, well, we've got it figured out. We know what's right. So then that means we don't need help, right? The Pharisees wanted to kill a man because he healed on the Sabbath. And that's the very picture there that they completely pushed out grace simply for the sake of what they thought or what they felt should have been the right thing to do. In order for us to effectively exalt Christ, advance the gospel, equip the saints, we must demonstrate grace just as Christ did. And we close out here in verse 24, and it says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And when we look at the word right there at the end where it says right judgment, it comes from the Greek word called the kaios, but it's the same word for right and for righteous. It's the same for right and for righteous. It's the righteous observing of divine laws and the keeping of God's commandments. So it says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And we do this for one reason is that so we are able to display, we're able to exalt the sovereignty of God in every situation as we, as we do it with right judgment. I want to ask you three questions here. You don't necessarily have to answer, but I want you to think about this, and they're actually, they're actually in your notes. And this is speaking to self-righteousness. In comparison to the perfection of Christ's righteousness, have you ever met a person that admits to being self-righteous. Are we usually, do we usually admit that? Or do we usually hear somebody admit that? You know, and if, if you're here tonight and um, you don't know Christ, and maybe you wouldn't say that you are self-righteous, the reality is, is before we know Christ, that's where we line up, is in our own righteousness. But the truth is, is, as Christ is calling you, as he's drawing you unto him, what he's doing is he's beginning to move in you so that you begin to see that your righteousness, or what you believe to be, is not in line with his righteousness. And you may not understand that that's exactly what's going on, but that is his work in your life and what he's ultimately showing you. Because we don't usually admit it. It's usually something that's very difficult 
for us to see. Two, how do you treat people who are different from you? How do you treat people who are different from you? And the question there is, is not so much to start lining out the differences, but the reality is, is when you come from a stance of being self-righteous, it's very easy for you to all of a sudden want to notice everything that's maybe different in another person, not by observation, but at an indictment of that person, of what they may be doing wrong, right? I can remember growing up um, in conversation with my dad, who's sitting here on the front row, and when we were discussing people and we were talking about situations, we were never allowed to describe that person by anything more than who they were, their attributes, what they did, where they worked, where they went to school. There wasn't a discussion of what skin color they were or what economic group they came from. That was not how people were to be described because the reality is, is that's not what Christ did for us. And if we want to step out of this place of being self-righteous and start lining up under the righteousness of God because that's who we are as believers, Scripture tells us that, we've got to be able to see people the way Christ sees them. And he doesn't see all that. What he sees is their heart. What he sees is the part that he needs and the part that he wants for the advancement of his gospel. And the th- third point here, to kind of a check. Do you excuse in yourself what you accuse in others? Do you excuse in yourself what you accuse in others? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I would dare to say at some point we all have, at some level. Why? Because when it's us, we can justify it. We can say why it was okay for us to do it. But we forget about the fact that this person, you know, maybe they had a justification as well, but we ignore that, right? Because we are self-righteous and we are the standard over here, right? So they need to line up with our standard when in reality, the standard is Christ and Christ alone, right? What the scripture tells us, it's not I who lives, but Christ who lives me. It's, it's better, you know, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's no confusion that it's all about Christ. We have to be able to be honest with ourselves. We have to be able to see the reality of self-righteousness, the reality of sin in our life so that a Savior can move in, so that there's room for grace and to take place in our lives. I love what it says in Psalm 139, 23 through 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievance ways in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That needs to be our heart cry. That what Christ would see in our life that is bad, and he would, he would convict us, and that we would be quick to change. That we wouldn't be quick over here in our self-righteousness to justify it, but that we would take it for what it is, and we would move on, and we would say, no, Christ what you're doing in my life, the change that you are doing in my life. And church, this is, this is not a process, like we talked about earlier, that's not going to happen overnight. You know, but the way I like to look at it is, is, look at the miracle that takes place each and every day. You know, look at the faithfulness of God in your life in areas each and every day. You know, we're so quick so many times to have a checklist of what he's done for us. But do we wake up the next morning and consider the grace that we had just getting through that day to be able to spend time with our family, to be able to pour into the lives of others? That is a moment of grace that I think so many times as a church we just blow by as believers. 
Because there's one reason everything's just moving so fast, but then we forget the simple nuances of what grace actually means. It's not always, a, it's not always this big moment in your life. It's the continued faithfulness of Christ in your life as you walk out as a believer, as you move in this process of sanctification unto glorification when we finally meet him once and for all. That's where we stand, church. There would be any grievance in way that lead me in that way everlasting. That we would see that he is the perfect Savior. That his teachings are perfect, that his will is perfect, and that his righteousness is perfect. So that we can align ourselves underneath that authority and effectively advance his gospel and exalt his name. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this time. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truth, God, of your word. And I thank you, God, that it's able to speak to us, Father, and it's able to change us and mold us and shape us. And God, I pray, Father, that we never find ourselves in a place that we believe that that can't happen and that that's not possible that our self-righteousness would not get in the way of that, Father, that we would walk in accordance with you, Father, and that we would be busy about your will, your commandments, Father, not our will, not our desires, but, God, that ultimately our desires and our will would be in alignment with you. God, thank you for this time. God, be with these people as they leave here. God, move in their lives. God, let them leave here differently, God, than the way that they came in because of you, Father, because of your word, Father, because of what you have taught them. And in Jesus' mighty name, thank you for this time. Amen.